Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes graphic descriptions of violence as well as dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Lamar Potts had been sheriff of Coweta County, Georgia for 12 years. And in that time, he had built a reputation for himself as the eyes and ears of the town. If anything happened under his jurisdiction, Sheriff Potts knew about it. By 1948, Coweta County had the lowest crime rate in the entire state of Georgia, due in large part to its star sheriff, Lamar Potts. For 12 years, Potts upheld the law with unwavering reverence. To him, every person was entitled to a fair trial. Criminals in the surrounding counties knew that if they ever got caught, they'd rather be caught by Sheriff Potts. April 20th, 1948 had been uneventful for the first half of the day. But shortly after 12 noon, the sheriff heard the phone ring. There had been an attack at the Sunset Tourist Camp, a roadside stop with a restaurant on the edge of town. The sheriff listened intently as the caller described the assault. Two men brutally beat their victim and dragged him into a green Ford sedan. The caller didn't recognize the assailants, but he could describe one of them, portly, bald with a hooked nose. That man was clearly the ringleader. Sheriff Potts wrote down the description, but he already suspected the man's identity, John Wallace a violent, powerful, and nearly untouchable man. Untouchable, at least, until he stepped foot into Coweta County. Now, Sheriff Potts was on the case. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our second episode on the murder of Wilson Turner. Last week, we covered how Wilson got caught in the crosshairs of a wealthy bootlegger. This week, we'll cover the shocking trial that made history for Meriwether County. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Sheriff Potts wasted no time. He called one of his colleagues, a young state patrolman named Sergeant Otwell, and the two of them drove to the small tourist camp. A group of people had gathered in the torn-up gravel driveway awaiting the sheriff's arrival. But as they anxiously recounted what they had seen that morning, the sheriff only became more sure of his suspicions. This was no random attack. The spectators described how the two men had overcome their young victim, beating him senseless and throwing his body into the back seat of their car. The two men claimed that the young guy was wanted for murder and had gotten loose, like an escaped convict or something. And they were prison guards, but I've never seen any lawmen handle something like that. The car they drove, was it a police car? No, sir. It was a green Ford sedan. Nothing official about it. 
And you said that one of them hit the young man over the head with a shotgun. Was that blow hard enough to kill him? Yes, sir. I'm sure of it. That kid's body just fell into the car like a rag doll. I'm sure he was dead. Sheriff Potts could feel a knot tightening in his chest. As he mulled over the witness reports, he and Sergeant Otwell surveyed the scene of the crime. The victim's truck had been abandoned, and luckily for the two lawmen, it carried a very useful clue. The license plate frame showed that the truck had been purchased from LaGrange Motor Company. It wouldn't be hard to find out who owned the vehicle. A quick call gave the officers the name of the victim, Wilson Turner. This name was familiar to Sheriff Potts. Coweta County was next door to Merriweather, and news traveled fast in rural Georgia. Potts knew that Wilson Turner worked for John Wallace and that the young man was recently fired from his job. Sheriff Potts also knew that John Wallace had a habit of being violent to his employees, but he needed more information. And luckily for him, he was well acquainted with just the man who could shed light on the situation. Back in Noonan, Georgia, at the Coweta County Police Station, Sheriff Potts called federal agent Earl Lucas. Agent Lucas had been assigned to John Wallace's territory before and had been keeping tabs on the kingdom's profitable moonshining operation. If anyone knew about some funny business going on at John Wallace's farm, it would be Agent Lucas. This is Agent Lucas. Earl, it's Lamar over in Coweta. What's new with the liquor operation over at John Wallace's place? I'm looking into an attack on one of his tenants, a young man named Wilson Turner. <sighs> oh boy. Turner, huh? John Wallace was making one hell of a stink about that guy. Called up our bureau and made a statement about how he thinks this kid was the one making illegal liquor on his property. Wallace wants us to catch him, but it seemed like pure hokey to me. Interesting. What makes you say that? John Wallace isn't a law-abiding citizen. In my mind, he just wanted to get rid of Turner. Wallace even said that if we didn't catch him, he would kill the kid. Seems he made good on his word. Thanks, Earl. I'll be in touch. This was the exact information that Sheriff Potts was looking for. He was convinced of it now. John Wallace killed Wilson Turner. But the sheriff knew that Wallace hadn't acted alone. All the witnesses at the Sunset Tourist Camp had described two men involved in the attack. Sheriff Potts was sure that one of the men was John Wallace, but he needed the other. And so far, all he knew about Wallace's accomplice was the make of his car, a green Ford sedan. The next day, Sheriff Potts called up the Bureau of Motor Vehicles to see who owned the vehicle. Merriweather County was small enough that locating a green Ford wasn't difficult, and witness Steve Smith had written down half of the license plate number. Within minutes of looking up the car, Sheriff Potts had the name of the second man, Herring Civelle. The name was familiar to Sheriff Potts. Herring Savelle was a known associate of John Wallace and had his own reputation for violence. Only a few years prior, Savelle was indicted for murder in a neighboring county. Sheriff Potts now had enough information for an arrest warrant, but sending John Wallace to jail wasn't going to be easy. 
As the head of law enforcement in Meriwether County, Sheriff Collier was the one who should arrest John Wallace. Lamar Potts knew that Collier wouldn't be keen on helping. Sheriff Potts contacted the Meriwether police station, but Collier wouldn't come to the phone. Potts left a message, hoping that Collier would come to his senses and get in touch. But when the call came, it was another disappointment. Lamar, sorry I missed your call. What can I do for you? I need you to bring in John Wallace for the attack at Sunset Tourist Camp. What? Oh, come on, Lamar. John was with me when that attack happened. I can vouch for him. He was right at my dining room table. I don't want you to vouch for him. I want you to bring him in. Oh, well, that would be impossible anyhow. John's out of town on business, and I don't know when he'll be back. Sheriff Potts didn't believe this for a second, but there wasn't much that he could do just yet. John Wallace lived in Meriwether County, and it was customary to ask the sheriff from the suspect's region to bring him in. The day passed, and Sheriff Potts couldn't find either John Wallace or Herring Savelle. Even Sheriff Collier was becoming harder and harder to contact. Sheriff Potts was losing his patience fast. Potts could tell that the men were stalling, and he was determined to cut their plans short. But it was difficult to do much at all if no one, not even the Meriwether Sheriff, would talk to him. But shortly after noon on April 22nd, Sheriff Potts' phone rang. Sheriff Potts, this is Gus Huddleston. I'm Mr. Wallace's attorney. I understand you have an arrest warrant for my client and for Herring Savelle? That's correct. Well, we've managed to locate both of them, and I'm happy to bring them both to the Coweta station. But you'll have to hold out until next morning. Fine. Nine o'clock. But if you're not here, I'm sending my men after you and your client. That won't be necessary. I'll see you tomorrow. On April 23rd, Sheriff Potts sat in his office watching the minutes slowly tick closer to 9 a.m. He wasn't convinced that John Wallace would actually show up, but this was the best bet that the sheriff had, and all he could do was wait. A few minutes before the hour struck nine, Sheriff Potts got the call he was hoping to receive. John Wallace and Herring Savelle had arrived with Gus Huddleston and, surprisingly, Sheriff Collier. Potts quickly made his way to the small office where the four men were being held. As he opened the door, John Wallace looked up at him, his expression unabashedly smug. Sheriff, I heard you were looking for me. I'm sure we can work something out between us. You seem like an understanding man, and I could make it worth your while. Is this man Herring Sabelle? Yeah, that's me. Good. I have an arrest warrant for both of you for the kidnapping and murder of Wilson Turner. Excuse me? On what grounds did you come up with this cockamamie warrant? Do you have any idea who I am? I know exactly who you are, John. And I know exactly what you did. You killed that young man. Oh, is that so? Well, if I killed him, then where's the body, Sheriff? You tell me. Sheriff Collier tried explaining to Potts that there had been a mistake, repeating the claim that John Wallace had an alibi for the time of the attack at Sunset Tourist Camp, but Sheriff Potts wouldn't hear it. As the men jostled for the sheriff's attention, Lamar Potts quietly opened the door and called for someone to be brought in. It was Steve Smith, one of the people who had witnessed the attack firsthand. 
Steve, would you mind helping me out here? Do you recognize these two men? Yep, no doubt about it. Those were the men who attacked Wilson Turner. I saw them do it. Thank you, Steve. You can ask the officer waiting outside to come in now. John Wallace, Herring Savell, and Sheriff Collier burst into another round of protestations, but Sheriff Potts was completely unfazed. He and his fellow officer guided the men out of the room and placed them under arrest. Gus Huddleston stood in a daze, hardly able to get a word in edgewise. And then I'll share it. You've got to understand the gravity of what you're doing. John Wallace is a man of great status. You can't just throw him in jail like a regular person. Oh, I'm about to. Oh, and Herring, is that your green Ford parked out front? Yes, that's my car. Wonderful. Officer, did you manage to run the plates? Sure did. It matches. Good. Herring, we'll be confiscating your car as material evidence. What? You can't just do that. Officer, take these men away. Sheriff Potts had done the impossible. He'd arrested John Wallace, the man who everyone in Meriwether County thought was untouchable. But the arrest was only the first step. Sheriff Potts wanted John Wallace convicted fair and square. In order to do that, he needed as much evidence as he could get. Sheriff Potts had to find the body. Coming up, the hunt for Wilson Turner ends with a shocking discovery. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from Parcast. When you think of a criminal, do you picture a killer, a gangster, a thief? I bet you didn't think it could be the little old lady down the street who murdered her tenants. Every Wednesday on my series, Female Criminals, meet the unlikeliest of felons, mothers, neighbors, and unsuspecting lovers with a penchant for dangerous behavior. Discover the psychology and motives behind their disturbing crimes and find out where their story stands today. But that's not all. Airing right now on Female Criminals is our special five-part look at the world's most infamous femme fatales, women who were deceptive and deadly, but not always the villain. Catch these episodes and more by following the Spotify original from Parcast, Female Criminals. New episodes premiere weekly. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. While John Wallace fumed in his cell in Coweta County Jail, the sheriff organized a massive search for Wilson Turner's remains. Potts sent out teams of bloodhounds, their calls echoing through the humid air. As the days passed, the scope of the search only grew larger. But throughout the search, no potential witnesses from Meriwether County offered to help. As hundreds of pairs of boots tramped through the brush, Meriwether residents watched silently from their windows, refusing to get involved in any cause that could tarnish John Wallace's name. But still, the hunt continued. By the week after Wilson Turner had been attacked and vanished, Sheriff Potts had assigned over 400 men to look for the young man's body. Officers from the surrounding counties slowly trekked through cornfields, swamps, and farmland, searching in vain for any sign of Turner's presence. 
Even with hundreds of people wandering through the Georgia backcountry, no one found a single scrap of evidence that pointed to Wilson Turner's whereabouts. John Wallace certainly wasn't about to reveal his location, and no one in Meriwether County was interested in helping. Sheriff Potts began wondering if John Wallace had destroyed the body. Without a body, the case would surely fall to pieces. Sheriff Potts needed answers fast. He put out a public notice offering a hefty reward to anyone who might reveal the body's location. But John Wallace had done his part to keep the people of Merriwether wrapped around his finger. So far, no one had called. By nightfall, Sheriff Potts and his men were exhausted from another fruitless day of searching. But then, the phone rang. Coweta County Police. Tom Strickland. He's your man. Tom. Tom Strickland. What about him? Bring him in. He knows. Knows what? Who are you? But the anonymous caller had already hung up. Tom Strickland was one of John Wallace's many family members who worked alongside him in the kingdom. And like John Wallace, Tom Strickland had a reputation for violence. But Tom didn't have John Wallace's charm. Tom Strickland was a brute, a tough guy who would go into fits of violent rage at the slightest provocation. And this was the man that Sheriff Potts needed to take in for questioning. The night after the mysterious call, Sheriff Potts and Sergeant Otwell drove their police cruiser to the kingdom. The two men knew that Tom Strickland would not go calmly. But Potts didn't waste his time, hoping that the Merriweather police would lend a hand. Potts and Otwell were on their own. Tom Strickland's house was dark, with only one light suggesting the presence of life inside. Sheriff Potts knocked on the front door and waited. Slowly, he heard the sound of heavy footsteps approaching. The screen door opened, and out stepped the tall frame of Tom Strickland. Tom Strickland, I think it's time we had a little chat. Okay. Let me grab my keys. But as he turned back toward the door, Tom thrust his hand inside his jacket, grasping at the gun holstered against his chest. Luckily, Sheriff Potts was quicker. He drew his own gun and jammed it against Tom Strickland's ribs. Get your hands up. You're under arrest for the murder of Wilson Turner. What? I didn't have anything to do with that. What makes you so sure that I was involved? Someone talked. At this, Tom Strickland made one final attempt at escape, hurling himself towards the front porch steps. But again, Sheriff Potts was ready. He grabbed Tom by the belt of his pants, yanked him back onto the porch, and held him there. Tom Strickland wasn't going anywhere. Sheriff Potts and Sergeant Otwell left Tom Strickland in a jail cell shortly after midnight, figuring that they would start interrogating the man in the morning. But surprisingly, they didn't have to wait that long. Potts was awoken at 3 a.m. from a call from the jailer, saying that Tom Strickland had gone to pieces. For such a tough guy, Tom couldn't handle the idea of being stuck in jail. He was yelling to be released, telling the jailer that he was ready to talk. Tom, I sure hope you have a good reason for waking me up. Sheriff, you've got to let me out of here. I don't want to be in jail. 
I'll tell you anything you want. Just let me go free. No deals, Tom. If you're involved, you're going to pay the price. But if you want to tell me what you did to Wilson Turner, I'm all ears. It wasn't my plan to do anything to Turner. That was John. He just gets like this. Like he's got to get revenge on someone. Nothing can stop him. All right, all right. Just walk me through it. Okay. John had me follow him and Herring in another car and wait out of sight. When they got Turner, I followed Savelle's car for a while until it turned off onto a dirt road because it had a flat tire. Then we switched Turner from his car to mine. Okay, and then what did you do with Turner? I didn't do anything to him. John did. We got to John's property and he carried Turner on his back out into the woods somewhere. Do you know where? In the swamp, about two to three miles from John's house. What did John do to Turner? What did he do? But by this point, Tom Strickland's emotions overcame him. He sank to the floor of his cell, sobbing into his hands. Tom Strickland hadn't offered everything he was hiding, but Sheriff Potts knew one thing. He and his men had to look through the swamp that ran throughout Wallace's property. The swamp was massive, full of identical trails and winding pathways that led nowhere. The sheriff's boots squelched through the damp earth, and he swatted away mosquitoes that hovered constantly around him. Within a few hours, Sheriff Potts was beginning to worry that Tom Strickland had taken the investigation to a dead end. It would take weeks, maybe even months, to search through the swamp, and the sheriff wasn't even sure what he was looking for. But suddenly, a man appeared through the brush. He was tall, muscular, and carrying an axe. Sheriff Potts didn't recognize him, but he assumed the stranger was one of Wallace's many workers. Sheriff, I'm glad I found you. I'm sorry. Who are you? My name isn't important, but I see you followed my advice from our brief phone conversation the other day. Strickland led you here, didn't he? You're the man who called the station. Yes, Strickland gave us some information, but I doubt we're going to find anything. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. There's no use trying to find Turner's body. There's nothing left to find. They burned it up. What? Burned it? Who burned it? Wallace and two of his employees. They took the body to an old liquor pit and cooked it until it was nothing but ash. The pit's about half a mile from here, in the woods. Do you know the names of the men who helped John Wallace? Albert Brooks and Robert Lee Gates. Wait, how do you even know this? A lot of us folk know about it. Some even saw the fire. Mr. Wallace isn't exactly subtle. But who would want to talk? Even behind bars, that man has a way of making people suffer. I understand. Now, show me where those two men live. The unnamed informant directed Sheriff Potts through the dim pathways of the swamp eventually emerging in front of a series of squat wooden houses surrounded by sparse farmland. This was where the sharecroppers lived. Albert Brooks and Robert Lee Gates were both black sharecroppers who had worked in John Wallace's kingdom for several years. Both of them learned the hard way to do whatever Wallace asked or face his violent wrath. Neither man had sought out the police once the investigation began. But when Sheriff Potts arrived, Albert and Robert Lee were hardly surprised to see him. I was wondering when you would show up. I have it in good faith that you and Albert were involved in the disposal of Wilson Turner's remains. 
Listen, sir, I don't want any trouble. Do you know what a man like John Wallace can do to someone like me? What he's already done to so many of us? John Wallace is a criminal, and I'm here to put him away for good. Your statement could be the deciding factor in putting this man in jail forever. Now, I can make sure you and Albert are protected, but I need you to tell me the truth. Did you both help John Wallace destroy Wilson Turner's body? God, yes. Yes, we did. I don't think I'll ever get the image out of my mind. You, you have to understand. John Wallace says jump, you jump as high as you can. He has a way of making you do things, anything he wants. Even, even that. Sounds like it. Do you think you could take me to the pit where you burned Turner? Yeah, we can do it. It's an ugly sight, I'm warning you. As dusk began to settle on the kingdom, the two men led Sheriff Potts through the swamp to a small clearing. In that spot, the dense green landscape had been completely destroyed. In its place, the ground was scarred with black ash. The actual fire pit had been wiped clean and posed a shocking contrast to the devastation that surrounded it. Is this where it happened? Yes, sir. We took the body here. Mr. Wallace had hidden in a well on the 20th, the day he killed Wilson Turner. Then we dragged the body out, and wrapped it up, and carried it on a pole, like how you do with the pig you're about to put on the spit. Why did you help Mr. Wallace do this? He had a pistol trained on us the whole time. We could either help him, or we could die. Well, I don't think you'll have to worry about that anymore, so long as you're willing to testify in court. At this point, we don't have anything else to lose. We'll do it. This was the final piece. Sheriff Potts knew, at last, that justice would be served against John Wallace. The man had spent decades intimidating his workers and holding Meriwether County in a vice-like grip. This testimony would end the reign of terror of John Wallace. And brick by brick, the kingdom would come crashing down. Coming up, the court seals John Wallace's fate and his case makes history. Stay with us. Now, back to the story. On June 14, 1948, the murder case against John Wallace finally began in the Coweta County Courthouse. Sheriff Collier tried and failed to move the trial back to Meriwether County, but Sheriff Potts wouldn't have it. This trial would be free from John Wallace's usual tricks. By this point, the entire state of Georgia was buzzing about the case. Journalists crowded the front of the courthouse, jostling to get a better look at John Wallace as he was led into the building. John, John, is it true that some of your own employees will be testifying against you? Mr. Wallace, do you feel like you've let down Meriwether County? How will your family recover? Don't worry your heads about me. I'm a simple dairy farmer who's been thrown into a massive mistake. And I'm sure that these proceedings will show exactly who I am. A caring, generous man who has been wrongly accused of a heinous crime. But Mr. Wallace, what about the testimonies of your former employees, Albert Brooks and Robert Lee Gates? I have nothing good to say about those two men. They are scoundrels, lowlifes, 
I'm disgusted with them, and they should be ashamed of themselves. And when I am finished with this charade of a trial, I what? will- What? You'll kill them too? Enough! Let me pass so we can get this over with. For many people outside of Meriwether County, John Wallace was seen as a monster, a tyrant who would stoop to any death to get his way. But within the confines of the kingdom, John Wallace was still seen as a benevolent, fatherly figure. The people of Meriwether County knew he was violent, but in their minds, he was only violent to people who deserved it, who had made the mistake of getting in John Wallace's way. All eyes were on the defendant when the jury was called in for the first day of the trial, and it quickly became clear that John Wallace wouldn't get out of this so easily. Luther Wyatt, the prosecutor assigned to the case, had done his homework. He called witness after witness, and they all attested to the same thing. John Wallace wanted to kill Wilson Turner. Miss Turner, would you mind telling me why your husband left Mr. Wallace's farm? Well, they had a fight about 20 gallons of liquor. Mr. Wallace told him to get off his land, and if he ever saw my husband again, he... He would kill him. Could you repeat your statement to the jury, please? Mr. Wallace said he would kill Wilson. Agent Earl Lucas, the federal agent who had been assigned to Wallace's farm, testified with a similar statement. The entire first day of the trial made it abundantly clear that John Wallace had every intention of killing Wilson Turner. But the second day of questioning would prove to be the final nail in the coffin for John Wallace, because it was this day that Robert Lee Gates and Albert Brooks were going to begin to testify. John Wallace watched with hatred in his eyes as his two employees recounted in explicit detail the events of April 21, 1948, the night that Wilson Turner's body was taken from its hiding place and later burned. When John Wallace returned to the kingdom, Wilson Turner was already dead. Wallace figured that if there was no body, there would be no way to prosecute him for murder. But he couldn't dispose of Wilson's remains alone. John Wallace first threw Wilson Turner's body down a well, leaving it there for the night until he could return with more men. And on the 21st, he set his sights on Albert and Robert Lee. He approached the two men at the end of the workday, explaining that he had a package that needed to be retrieved from a well on the property. But Wallace had several wells on his property, and the swampy landscape made it difficult for Wallace to retrace his steps. Wallace had forgotten where he'd hidden the corpse. It took the entire night and part of the following morning for the men to find Wilson's body, but on the 22nd, the three men found the body, dragged it out of the well, and got to work. Albert and Robert Lee wrapped Wilson Turner's body in burlap, tied it to a long pole, and carried it to a nearby barn where they could hide it until later that afternoon, while Wallace looked for a place to burn it. Next, Robert Lee and Albert brought Turner's body deep into the swamp, stopping at an old liquor still. There, Wallace instructed the two men to line the pit with a rack of wood and to throw the body on top of it. As Robert Lee and Albert watched in horror, John Wallace dumped gallon after gallon of gasoline onto the corpse. Then, with a swift motion, he lit a match and threw it into the pit. 
The body burst into flame, a column of fire shooting up into the night sky. The group of men stood in silence, watching the blaze devour the body. After 30 minutes, John Wallace told the two men to go home and return the next day to scrape up the ashes. On April 23rd, Albert and Robert Lee returned to the swamp with burlap sacks, and again Wallace was waiting for them. He told them to shovel the ashes into the sacks and dump them into a nearby stream. The men did as they were instructed, watching nervously as Wallace stood in the clearing, training his pistol on them as they worked. Albert and Robert Lee threw the ashes into the river, cleaned the pit, and just like that, Wilson Turner had been erased from the earth. After this testimony, there was hardly anything that the defense could do to save John Wallace from his fate. And in a few short days, the trial ended with a stunning verdict. On June 18, 1948, the jury found John Wallace guilty of murder and sentenced him to death by the electric chair. This trial was historic in the state of Georgia. Not only was the king of Meriwether County finally dethroned and brought to justice, but it was largely because of the testimonies of his black employees. And so it was through the bravery of Albert Brooks and Robert Lee Gates that history was made in that small Georgia court. John Wallace was executed by electrocution on November 3rd, 1950. For many people who remember the murder in Coweta County, the name John Wallace is still synonymous with greed, violence, and death. But Meriwether County is another story. Even in death, it seems that John Wallace still holds the imagination of the people of Meriwether County. To some of them, he remains a fatherly figure, a benevolent patron of the area. The death of Wilson Turner is often waved away, a violent act for a violent time. It's extremely difficult to find the final resting place of Wilson Turner's remains. There is no memorial in Meriwether County dedicated to him or to any of the other people that John Wallace killed. But John Wallace is still remembered. If you drive through the winding two-lane roads of Meriwether County, you may find yourself on John Wallace Road, a trail of asphalt five miles long. It doesn't get much traffic, but it's symbolic nonetheless. This small stretch of pavement winds through the land that used to be the kingdom. So even now, John Wallace lords over his land, his violence a fading memory. Thanks again for tuning into Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on Wilson Turner and John Wallace, amongst the many sources we used, we found Murder in Coweta County by Margaret Barnes extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solve Murders, True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. 
This episode of Solve Murders was written by Georgia Hampton, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Bill Butts, Tiana Camacho, Kai Jordan, Julian Smith, and Dan Velasquez. Solve Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 